desire to get into God's Word together. Uh, some of you may need a copy of the Bible. Just lift your hand up. We'll bring one to you. We want to make sure that you're tracking with us as we move through a passage of Scripture together. Now, I'm going to make a claim, and I don't have time this morning to defend that claim other than to say God's Word says so. If you're in here this morning and you're not sure about the authority of Scripture, then you won't be sure about anything that follows in what I'm saying. That's true every Sunday. It's especially true this Sunday. Uh, But for those of you who take the Bible as God's authoritative word, we often miss the realities that it points to, like the demonic realm, the spirits that exist that we can't see, that we can't smell, that we can't touch. We see the effects of their work, but rarely do we attribute those effects to their work. It's always some natural cause. It looks like a natural cause, or it's just something that just popped in my head. It didn't just pop in your head. And while it may be difficult to discern when was that demonic influence and when was it just me, when was that just something that happened, and one might it have been satanic influences behind it. We may not know specifically when they're directly behind certain events or certain things that happen to you or certain thoughts that you think, but we do know that oftentimes they are. And many of us, we live our lives as if they never are. This is just ancient folklore. This is weird. This is like Lord of the Rings orcs and stuff, you know, like stuff that doesn't really exist. But when you read the Bible, if you take the Bible seriously, they very much exist. It doesn't take long when you open the Bible in the very beginning to see this influence. What are demons capable of? These unclean spirits, these fallen angels, what are they capable of? Well, they're capable of deceit. Eve. Did God really say? He didn't really say that. Not only are they capable of deceit, they're also capable of just straight temptation. Because we see Adam is there, and he's not deceived. He just can't turn down the offer. We see that people that are unbelievers, they are unbelievers precisely because Satanic influences have blinded their minds from being able to see the light. 1 Corinthians 4. They're not just randomly atheists. They're not just, they just happen to be, I don't believe that. They can't believe it. You remember that soil where the seed lands on the soil and the birds come and snatch it away? Who are those birds? Jesus identifies them as Satan and his host. They snatch away the preaching of God's Word. So someone can come to church and it just keeps bouncing off. It just keeps bouncing off. That's satanic. We see in 1 Peter 5 that they have an agenda. They don't just walk around bumping around and maybe they might bump into you. They are on a hunt. Satan prowls like a lion. And when does a lion prowl? When it's hungry And it's looking for something to pounce on and devour. It's intentional. The lion is not sitting around waiting for a gazelle to walk into its den. The lion is out there laying in wait, 
and looking for somebody weak, somebody straggling, somebody to pounce on to devour. It's intentional. It's a plan. They're not stupid. And they're on the constant hunt. We are fools to ignore this reality. They're capable of prompting violence. When you turn on the news and there's a bombing, there's a shooting, gangs are killing each other in the streets, that's demonic. Now, can I say a demon is behind every shooting? Which shooting is a demon directly behind? No, I can't say that. I can say in general we know that they have the ability to prompt human beings to do violence that they wouldn't have done had the demons not influenced it. They can start fires. Oh, we're not sure what happened. We still don't know how the Chicago fire happened. They can cause a lightning storm and cause a lightning bolt to strike and cause a fire that kills people. They can cause a windstorm to destroy a house, to destroy a village, to kill people. Now that sounds a little far-fetched. He's prompting there. can prompt violent people to kill. They can start fires to kill people. They can start windstorms to kill people. Where am I getting that from? Those last three examples are all Job chapter 1. Job's family didn't just happen to be killed by a windstorm and the house fell on them. They didn't just happen to be killed by the Chaldeans who jumped them and marauded their home. They didn't just happen to get struck by fire from heaven and then the fire killed the family. It all happened right after God gave Satan permission to touch Job's family, just don't touch him. They didn't come as the grim reaper. They didn't come with uh, looking like a gargoyle. They, they didn't come with fangs. They came through violent men and storms. So, the Bible makes it clear that demons are quite capable of very supernatural, powerful things. And they do it in such a way where you go, oh, weird, lightning happened to strike. Oh, that's strange. They just happened to kill those people. Weird, why are shooters shooting people all of a sudden? It's the gun laws. That's the problem. We need more stickers on doors. We need more guns. We need more gun training. Hardly ever do we think, that's satanic and we need to pray. I want you to see an encounter with one of the gravest, darkest episodes of demonic influence that we find in Scripture. And that's in Mark Chapter 5. As soon as Jesus gets off the boat, He just calmed the storm with the disciples. The storm can't get in Jesus' way. But now we have this demoniac who confronts Jesus in Mark chapter 5. Mark is the second Gospel in the New Testament lineup. It's the second book in the New Testament lineup. You flip there, you can join us right at the top of chapter 5 where we see that the extent of demonic influence is frightening. It is frightening the extent to which demons can have an influence in someone's life. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs 
a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. and No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So there's Mark's profile of this demoniac, this demon-influenced, demon-possessed, some say, demonized man would be more accurate. And you see how strange it is. This guy lives among the tombs. He's just hanging out with corpses. That's where he's comfortable. He doesn't like life. He likes death. He doesn't think of lively things. He thinks of morbid things. And so he's comfortable among the tombs. He's violent, and we know that because thankfully Matthew and Luke also record this episode and their versions, as soon as they're done with the story of the Jesus calming the storm, they also record this story. And we find out when we do the comparison that no one was able to pass by where this guy hung out because he was violent. He'll kill you. Why else would they try to shackle him? He's not just a crazy guy. Oh, the crazy guy that lives over in the tombs. He's hurting people. Let's subdue him. We also see that this was progressive. He didn't start out as bad as he now is. Where do you get that? Well, you see that when it says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. They used to be able to bind him, presumably, but not anymore. He broke the ropes, they brought the chains. He broke the chains, they brought the shackles. The shackles are in pieces. These aren't little handcuffs you buy at the toy store. Shatters them. A man can't do that. He does. And he doesn't just stay to himself and stay quiet. He, night and day, he walks around in the tombs, he roams around on the mountains. He's covering some ground there. And he's always crying out. Not weeping, but shrieking. uh, Screaming. We also know we find out later in this passage, but the other gospel writers let us know in advance that he's naked. No clothes. And in his nakedness, he takes stones to gash himself. Now We're not sure exactly what is happening there. If the demons are influencing the man to destroy himself, I think that's likely. Some commentators think that the man in moments of consciousness, he so hates himself, he so loathes himself, that he starts cutting himself because he hates himself. Either way, that's what the demons want. They're bent on destruction. They're not bent on health. They keep him from killing himself because they're quite enjoying their puppetry of the man. And you see how opposite this man is from all that God wants a man to be. You think of the pinnacle of God's desire for our lives. 
And it's to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This guy can't love his neighbor and he definitely doesn't love himself. Cuts himself. So he's the very opposite. The demons have this man in the polar extreme opposing what God has intended for man. He is completely lost, completely broken, and he's in the darkest place imaginable. Now, we shouldn't be ones to get our information on demonic activity from stupid Hollywood movies, but we should get it from these texts, and it's pretty plain. Demons are real, demons are powerful, and demons are bent on destruction. And not just random destruction, they want to destroy faith. Satan is about destroying faith right in the beginning in Genesis 3. God didn't say that, don't believe that, run the other way. When he prowls around looking for someone to devour, he's looking to devour someone's faith. He doesn't care if they're alive or dead, he wants to take their faith. You say, what about in Job when they're killing people and killing families? Why is he doing that? To destroy Job's faith. So that's their goal. That's their agenda. We know that because you read through Scripture what their activity is like, and that's what their activity is always about. You see their agenda from their actions. And they're about destroying faith, blinding people from having faith, and getting people who claim to have faith off track. So we may not experience demonic oppression to this extent, but he's lurking. Think about our teens today that hate themselves. All the selfies, all the snaps, all the videos of myself, 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 and pushing it to other contacts within those apps. It just widens the hole inside of you. You can't snap enough photos in the mirror to make you feel better about yourself. So here you have this man who's taken off his clothes. No shame. But he's full of shame. And he takes rocks to gash open his own skin because he hates himself. Now, when I say that's demonic, I'm not claiming that every time someone cuts themselves or every time someone loathes themselves or every time somebody has a shattered self-image that there's always a demon behind their shoulder every single one. Maybe, maybe, but I'm not making that claim. What I'm making the claim is, even if you do that and get to that point without a demon behind your shoulder, you don't need a demon behind your shoulder because you are on the path that they want you on. It's the demonic agenda, and therefore it's demonic. Your dark thoughts, when you can't give someone the benefit of the doubt. You've been so hurt in the past, everyone's, a, everyone's an enemy now. Someone tries to do something nice, you're looking around the corner. What, what, what does he really mean? That person must be evil. They must be plotting something evil. That's demonic. Satan is the accuser. He wants to accuse you. He wants to condemn you. And he wants you to be condemning towards everybody else. So when we, our behaviors match the demonic agenda, I'm not saying we're possessed. I'm saying that's a demonic agenda. That's demonic. That's satanic. When we can't love our neighbor and we're unable to love self, that's demonic. 
Many of us are incapable of loving appropriately because we're incapable of appropriately loving what God has made us to be. Is there any hope? We don't know when they're lurking. We don't know how they're working. They have this demonic agenda. They're out to destroy families, destroy marriages, destroy churches. There's hope because this hero gets off the boat and confronts this demonic presence. This is the original comic book superhero story, man. And Jesus gets off the boat. It's quite an encounter. Verse 6, when this demonized, oppressed man saw Jesus from afar... He ran away. Nope. He ran and fell down before him. I love that. Jesus' power just magnetically draws this thing to just fall in front of him at his feet. He ran and fell down before Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Demon's theology is always on point. They don't call him teacher. They don't call him miracle worker. The disciples are still trying to figure that out. The Pharisees are still trying to figure that out. Demons, they know exactly who he is. Their theology is not a problem. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Why would they be asking that if their theology was on point? Well, that's because of their eschatology, their understanding of the end time. They know that how things are going to get wrapped up is Jesus is going to conquer them and finally uh, put an end to their wickedness and their oppression and their ways and roaming throughout the earth. No more roaming. You're going to an abyss. You're going to an eternal uh, place of torment. They know that. What they don't realize is the timing. Why are, you, why are you here now? Why are you here now? What are you doing? So in... Luke's account in chapter 8, they tell Jesus, don't send us time, it's not time for you to send us to the abyss. Here they say, we adjure you by God, do not torment me. That's interesting. They're, they're, <laughs> they're calling God, I adjure you by God. You're a demon. <laughs> How can you call on God for anything? It's totally stupid but they just don't want to be tormented. They don't want to go to a place where they can't do their work. For Jesus was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus is giving them some slack. Every other encounter we've seen, Jesus speaks to the demon, tells them to shut up, they shut up. He says, come out, they come out. Here Jesus says, come out, and they're trying to bargain. Jesus gives a little slack to have the conversation. And so Jesus asks, asks him, what is your name? And he replied, my, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now Legion, you may have heard this, is pretty common understanding that Legion was uh, a unit in the Roman army that would represent five to 6,000 soldiers in an infantry easily. I don't think that means there's actually 6,000 demons in this man. It could just be, we're just saying that's how 
that's how big of a multitude we are. It's not two or three. It's thousands. But it could be 6,000. We don't, we don't know if it's exact number. Maybe it's a bigger number than that and Legion is just the biggest number he could draw from. Maybe it's 10,000. I don't know. He says, our name is Legion for we are many. Why is Jesus suffering him to even talk? Because he wants that to come out and he wants people to see what Jesus is confronting here. Thousands of demons. Now you might go, how can thousands of demons fit in a person? They're non-spatial beings. It's not about fitting. They're spirits. They're not physical. It's not about fitting inside somebody. It's control of the mind. So we are legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly. He begged Jesus, the demoniac begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now so he says, he, them. He begged Jesus to not send them. Why, does it, why didn't it say they begged Jesus to not send them? Because those thousands of demons are using one man's voice. They're, 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 they're using this man as a puppet to communicate what they want. So the man spoke to Jesus, but behind what the man wanted was an agenda that was demonic. These thousands of demons. And what do they want? They want to not be cast out of this region, this country. They have a stronghold here. They quite enjoy what they're doing. They quite enjoy the stronghold that they have on the community, and we'll see more about that in a minute. But it says in verse 11, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Anything but the abyss, right? We want to stay in this area. How about just send us into these pigs? And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I'm like, okay, so Jesus gives them permission. They beg Jesus, send us into the pigs. Jesus gives them permission, sends them into the pigs, and 2,000 pigs jump straight into the Sea of Galilee and drown. Michael, well, there's 2,000, so it couldn't have been 6,000. They were previously occupying one dude. It wasn't one demon per pig. It could have been hundreds of demons per pig. We don't know. But there were so many of them that they were able to occupy 2,000 swine and again, it's debatable. Some people think the swine kind of fighting this demonic influence went and killed themselves. Or that because they were bent on destruction, they decided to kill their own hosts. But at least they're not in the abyss. Now they're kind of roaming around bodiless as they were prior to their influence on the man. But you have 2,000 pigs in a herd that jump to their own death into the sea. And it's ironic. They don't want to go into an abyss he sends them into the pigs, and the pigs take them to an abyss. Foreshadowing their, where they will be ending up eventually. You remember last week I told you that sea and floods and storms often represent judgment. And in this case, it represents this abyss that they will eventually be in. So they begged, send us into the pigs. Jesus sends them into the pigs. And Jesus demonstrates his indisputable supremacy over these demons. They do what they did and they did what they did in Genesis 3 because God let them do that in Genesis 3. They did what they did to Job because God let them do what they did to Job. Remember when Paul was suffering with that thorn in his side? Paul knew somehow through revelation that it was Satan doing it to him. Now, a doctor would have diagnosed something else. You have this or you have the other thing. 
He didn't know what it was. He just called it a thorn in his flesh, but he knew it was Satan doing it to him, and he prayed three times for Jesus to relieve him, and Jesus said, no, I want them doing that to you right now so you could depend on my grace. Again, Satan and his host are on God's leash all the time. And so when Jesus confronts this demoniac, he doesn't have to pull out a long book of spells He doesn't have to read a long Latin abracadabra thing. He doesn't have to pull out a wand. He doesn't have to say, time out, let me go pray and fast for a really long time to get prepared for this, because man, it's thousands of them. Nope. Go to the pigs. They go to the pigs. Indisputable supremacy. There's nothing in Scripture about hanging anything in your house, about putting dream catchers over your bed, about memorizing certain sayings, that there's a formula to the rebuke. Guys, the supremacy over demons is Jesus. It's a person. It's not an incantation. It's Jesus himself. You don't have power over demons. Jesus has power over demons. So Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our focus. Not even the demons themselves. The Bible gives us so few details on demons. We don't know how they rank. We don't know how many. We don't know how, when they do what they do. We just see the effects of it, and it lifts the veil just enough for you to know there's demonic activity. But why doesn't it give us more details? I think because we already are suckers for demonology and creepy things and folklore and you know this kind of stuff. We already like to get into details that really don't matter. What matters? The focus that the Bible does give us and the focus that the Bible does give us is the one that's able to command the sea and the storms, diseases and sicknesses is also the one that can command demons. Our focus needs to be Christ, not the demons. Be aware of them. Understand the grave danger we are in, in this spiritual battle that we have that we can't see. But know your source of victory. It's Jesus Christ himself who has demonstrates uh, unflinching, unwavering supremacy over these demons. Now, this passage doesn't end because now we're going to see the response of the people. These people have this violent demoniac hanging out in the tombs. You know, God forbid you have a funeral for your family. You've got to approach the tombs to bury your uncle. I mean, it's like call it off or what do you do? Bury him somewhere else? This crazy demoniac is hanging out up there. You go for a nice hike in the mountains. This guy's popping out behind trees. Ah, He's screaming, bleeding. He's naked. You don't want to go anywhere. Jesus relieves them of this oppression. Thousands of demons have been present in this region doing their work. And now they're gone. How would they respond to that relief, to that rescue? Well, it might surprise you. Because they don't like it. He gave them permission to go into the pigs. They rushed down the steep bank. They drowned in the sea. And then verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. They're telling everybody what happened. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Get out! 
We don't want you. Please don't be here. What? Look what I just did. Did you enjoy that? Did you like having this guy hanging out in the tombs and scaring everybody, killing people? You tried to shackle him. You couldn't shackle him. I just solved the entire dilemma. Now, some people think the reason why they were upset is because Jesus killed their pigs. I mean, these are herdsmen, right? This was their herd of pigs. They made money. This is Gentile territory. They herded pigs and probably sold them to the Roman occupying army and they made money with their barbecue. That might be part of the reason but we're not left to guesswork. Mark tells us why they're responding this way. And he says in verse 15 that it was because of fear. This man who was demon-possessed, this man who had the legion, this man who couldn't sit because he was constantly roaming and cutting himself up in the mountains, down in the tombs, now he's sitting. This man who was naked and full of gashes, now he's clothed. This man who was shrieking and speaking who knows what wasn't in his mind at all. Now he's in his right mind. And now they're afraid. That's kind of opposite, ain't it? He was crazy, murderous, violent before. Now he's calm, he's sitting, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. And now everyone's afraid. The point there is that Jesus is scary powerful. It's just happened at the end of the last passage that we looked at last week. Look at verse 41, the last verse of chapter 4. Jesus calmed the storm, and what happens to the disciples? Oh, they were relieved. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Cool, we can go through any storm and you can just calm it. No, their response was they were filled with great fear. Who is this guy? They're scared of Jesus. Not enough to not follow him anymore, but they're gulping. And they've got a knot in their chest. And they suddenly don't feel like eating their next meal for a little while. Because this man is scary powerful. We're not left to guesswork. Jesus heals this man, casts out thousands of demons that cannot be contained, cannot be fought. And their response is not, can you please stay? So what if the demons come back? No, no, we'd rather have demons who kind of keep to themselves in the tombs and have a guy that's scary, powerful like you walking around. We don't even know what to do with you. Please just get out before more pigs die. So their response to Jesus is rejection. What's the appropriate response? I love how the story ends for this man. We don't know what his story was. How did he start with the demons? Was he... Was he delving in praying to spirits? Was he doing things that were witchcraft related? Uh, We don't know. We don't know his story. But we see how his story ends. Verse 18, it says, as he was getting into the boat, and first of all, I love how Jesus didn't immediately get back in the boat. You know, it took some time for these herdsmen to go run, tell their story. They went and told the whole city. They went and told the whole region. People came. After they came, they started explaining what was happening. This guy had time to get cleaned up, get dressed. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. What is Jesus doing the whole time? I think Jesus is teaching the man. Uh, Luke tells us the man is sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus is teaching. And, he's, and he knows everybody's going to come back and kick him out. But until that time, he's just going to equip the dude. But Jesus is hanging out. They ask him to leave. And Jesus responds. He acquiesces. He gets in the boat. 
Jesus doesn't argue. He doesn't go, now, hold on a second. I just did this for you. He just gets in the boat. Okay, bye. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, still remains nameless, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be with the disciples. He wants to get in the boat. Everyone else wants to reject Jesus. He feels the appreciation of the relief of no longer being tormented, of no longer loathing himself, of no longer slashing himself open, of no longer being incapable of love toward self and love toward others. He appreciates this freedom and he wants to be with the source of that freedom and he begs Jesus to go with him. But verse 19, Jesus does not permit him. No. Now this is interesting because Mark tells us there's three episodes of begging in this passage. First, the demons beg Jesus. Don't send us out of this region. Send us into the pigs. Please, they beg Jesus. And Jesus says, yes. Yes to your request. Then the people beg Jesus, please leave. Get out of here. And Jesus says, yes. He gets in the boat. Now this man who's been healed, who loves Jesus, he wants to be with Jesus, begs Jesus, please, I want to be with you. No. So he tells the demons yes. He tells the people that reject him yes. And the one that wants to follow him, he tells him no. How will that shape your prayer life? You always want Jesus to say yes to the things you ask? No. Sometimes Jesus knows better for you? Yep. Because Jesus has a different plan for this guy. I'm not going to be in this region, but you're going to be in this region. I'm not going to proclaim the gospel here, but you're going to proclaim the gospel here. They don't want me but they're still going to get me through you. I'm commissioning you. And he gets something that no one else has gotten yet. Other people have been healed and Jesus says, Shh, don't tell anybody about me. Oh, I'm really excited you took my leprosy away. Okay, but don't tell anybody. They disobey Jesus and he goes and tells. But this man doesn't get silenced by Jesus. He gets commissioned to be a preacher. He says, he did not permit him, verse 19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim. He began to preach in the Decapolis, the city, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now isn't that strange? In front of everybody, Jesus does this miraculous work that demonstrates the truth of the gospel and everyone rejects him. But you have somebody who's been healed by Jesus and he goes and tells and the response isn't rejection, but they marvel. There's something different about Jesus' commissioned preachers bringing the gospel to other people that is intentionally set up by God that way to have success. Where Jesus himself didn't have success. Not because he can't do it, but because he's setting it up to be this way. He turns this man into an evangelist. He turns this man into a preacher. And what is his message? How much could Jesus possibly have taught him in that intervening time while they were running and getting, the herdsmen were running and getting all the townspeople to come with their pitchforks to kick Jesus out? How much time might that have been? A few hours? I don't know. It wasn't weeks. It wasn't days 
This man doesn't have time to get seminary in a box. He doesn't have time to understand the interrelation between all the covenants of the Old Testament and how it's revealed in the New Covenant and the New Testament. He doesn't have time to learn uh, Hebrew and Greek and exegesis and grammar and hermeneutics. He doesn't have time to go to an apologetics conference. He doesn't have time to read theology books. What does he have? He has his experience of freedom from the only one who can grant freedom. That's what he has, and that's his message. How Jesus impacted his life and relieved him from the torment of demons. Now, each of us have a background. And for every single one of us, we have a time when we were not with Christ. And before we came to Christ, the Bible makes it very clear, each and every single one of us were enslaved to sin. You may not have had a thousand demons on top of you. You may not have been breaking shackles and throwing people around. You may not have been murderous and shrieking in mountaintops and scaring people. But you were a rebel against God because you were enslaved to the demonic agenda, which is no faith. God, in His mercy, took that veil that the demons had over your eyes and lifted it kicked the birds off of that soil and tilled it. And that seed produced something in you. And it produced crop in your life. And there's fruit happening in your life. And you're not perfect yet. And you haven't figured everything out yet. And you still make mistakes, but it's happening and it's growing. And it's, some of us is 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But we're not dead in the water. We're not getting choked out by thorns. And we're not getting scorched up by the sun. We're growing because of God's grace. And that's your message. You know people in your life that are still oppressed. And the answer isn't more counseling. The answer isn't go get away for a weekend. Your marriage will be better. The answer is the freedom that only Jesus Christ can grant to a person or to a marriage or to a family. Jesus resolves self-image issues because we are created in His image and God's agenda is to conform us to the image of Christ. And if Christ isn't the center, you'll always be chasing the mirror and it will eat you alive. No compliment from a boy, no compliment from a girl is ever going to fill that hole. Jesus knit you together in your mother's womb to be conformed to His image. And there's freedom in that. And when you gain that freedom, you are compelled by God's love and His commission, which He then extends, not just from this guy, but to all the disciples and the disciples after them to go and preach the message Go and be a witness for what God has done in your life. It's a miracle. It's amazing that we've been freed. That we've experienced the relief of the oppression that we were once in. And the appropriate response is not silence. The appropriate response is to take that message to those that are still enslaved, still trapped, still oppressed. And you have the news that can bring them the freedom that only Jesus can bring. And you can approach the worst, the most demonic uh, agenda matching person in your life, and there's hope for that person. Because the thousands of demons, hundreds of demons, one demon, no demons, it doesn't matter. Jesus is supreme. And He grants forgiveness after which there is now, no condemnation at all. 
That's a tasty freedom. And we dare not keep it from others. Let's be like this guy. Reckon with what God has done for us. And go tell it. Go spread it. Share it with someone over coffee. Share it with someone over dinner. Text it to someone. Drop it in someone's Facebook messenger. Just, just share what God has done for you. Let's take his commission seriously because people are in serious trouble. Let's pray.